welcome to the Evans for Seven campaign podcast. My name is Jordan Evans, and I'm running for the Wyoming State Legislature in House District 7. Throughout the campaign, this podcast will feature people from in and around the district with interesting perspectives that would like to have a conversation with me. In this episode, I'll be speaking with Charles Fournier. Charles lives in House District 7 and works as an educator, as well as doing audio journalism and production for Wyoming Public Media. I think he is just about as kind and as caring of an individual as I have ever met. I really enjoyed our conversation, and I hope you do as well. So I think first thing that I always I always wonder about, like why folks decide to run, was there a moment in your mind where you're like, yes, I need to run? For me, there was not a one single moment. Um, I've actually had a lot of people in my life say, oh, you're going to run for something someday. And I've actually been resistant to that just because I and I think the reason they would say that is because I care about politics and I care about and I have strong opinions about it a lot of the time and I'm not afraid of expressing it. But I, I, I thought that it was more the activist space is where I would be and not activist as in like organizing, but, you know, volunteering for other candidates, giving money where I can. But I think when in 2020 there were no more Democrats represented in Laramie County at all, I it just made me realize that there were no other voices in the room. And that's when I really started thinking seriously about putting together a, a campaign. That makes sense. And I feel like, like the resistance of being wanting to help other folks. I think that's something that that's kind of hard sometimes is like, it's like the John Snow syndrome of like, I don't want to lead. Damn it. <laughs> uh, but I got, I guess I, yeah. <laughs> hopefully I don't get stabbed. Um, <laughs> man, they brought him back. It's, yeah, it's fine. Spoilers. Yeah. Um, yeah. Sorry, everyone. And, and so like, I guess to thinking if you're seeing like, okay, there's not, there are no Democrats running. That kind of makes sense for like one of my questions, like why now, but why house district seven rather than something else? Well, there's uh, there's a very practical answer to that question, and that is I work in local government. And uh, even though local government is something I care a lot about and interests me, I have a great deal of respect for every single elected official that currently represents us. They, I think that Laramie County is very blessed to have competent and caring elected officials, both at the city and the county. And I just both personally for just my job and and also politically, I, I think they do a pretty good job and I didn't want to rock the boat to run locally. And if I really think about it, I, I think I care more about statewide issues. Those are the things I have the most opinions on. Those are the things I've looked into the most throughout my adult life. And so I think that that is where my interests aim. So like what? What issues kind of stand out to you thinking statewide issues? The first thing that really grabbed my attention uh, as a young adult was the public land transfer and the attempt to transfer public lands. And that that is um, something I cannot say enough. I, I disagree with. I, I think our public lands are treasures. I think keeping them in federal management is crucial. And I think that that is probably the issue that got me most interested in state politics and also just the concern I have for the future of our, our revenues and our ability to take care of the people that live here. I know that things are declining and it seems like even though people acknowledge it very point blank, often when it comes time to take action, no action is taken. And that's really frustrating because I feel like we're running out of time to keep our state livable. And like when you're thinking future revenue and like just keeping the state livable, 
Well, like what's your plan or, or what do you mean by that livable thing? Is it like in your mind, is it diversifying economy? Is it, and like, I guess, I, what, what do you mean revenue? Is it paying for like public works? Is it paying team? Yeah. Like what, what, what's in your mind? Like, and what's yeah. your plan? I've been asked a lot why I run as a Democrat instead of as a Republican or as an independent. And I do really identify with Democrats on the idea that government is a tool that can be used for good. And in Wyoming specifically, and many other states, we have to balance our budget. So that's not an option. So when I talk about making a livable community or using or worrying about declining revenues, I know that the only voice in the room right now is cut it to the bone. Less services, less things for the citizens, because we don't want to ask them or any other person other than the current paradigm that we have, which is relying primarily on mineral interests to provide those services. And I think that those services are a boon to so many people from the very like basic healthcare and subsidized housing, all the way up to things like pathways, like the Greenway and nice amenities. So when I talk about a livable community and using revenues, to support livable communities. I, I think of it holistically. I, I was watching a League of Women Voters seminar and actually the incumbent in the district, Bob Nicholas, he gave a really good talk to the League of Women Voters. And he said the same thing I've been saying in my campaign. I want young people to stay here. But he said, but I want to focus on making sure that everyone has a living wage. And that seems woefully inadequate to me. A living wage is so important, but if you were paid a living wage and you have to drive two hours to go to the hospital, what else is going to attract you to stay in that community? If you're paid a living wage, but there's not a movie theater or a place to recreate within your community, what makes you want to have children and grow a family here? To kind of go back to the other part that you were asking about is like, how do we see increasing those revenues? That's a really hard question that I don't have a complete answer for. But I think the lowest hanging fruit is really investing in tourism. I look at Colorado, I look at Utah, and I look at Montana, and I look at Idaho, and I see these places that really are able to maintain their character and take in revenue from people that want to come and visit and use that to support their communities. And I think that we are very far behind them on developing tourism in those fronts. So I think that's one place where we could definitely look to, and it's our next biggest industry after government and, and minerals, you know, tourism is our next biggest industry. It has the biggest potential for growth. And an important note about diversifying the economy. I know that there's been one prominent, but many other studies that show that diversifying our economy is not enough unless we have means with which to capture revenue. By bringing extra people here, it actually puts more of a burden on the road systems and infrastructure systems that we have rather than bringing in more money to improve those things because we don't have a way that's very efficient to take revenue from that economic activity and turn it into support for the people who live here. How do we have better communication or like there was an instance where like a lot of my focus is on education, like mm -hmm. 65% of teachers said they'd leave if they could in Wyoming. And, and this is based on like a, a sample size, right? Yeah. Like, so it's, it's a percentage of all of the educators, but really Still, teachers want to leave, man. Yeah. Um, and it seems like there is, I guess, how do we, how do we support these folks? How do we, how do we convince legislators to 
want to support education or trust teachers. I think maybe that's it. It seems like a lot of times when cuts come down or we hear people talk about education in the legislature, it's, it's like, oh, they got summers off. Oh, they just complain. Like there's a lot of, it just, how do we, how do we overcome that? Like when we think about communication gaps or, or maybe even the perception of, of educators, we see that with university, but also with, with our public education. I think that, and there's another obstacle, which is that many of them view education as the sacred cow that they can't touch because of the Supreme Court ruling that says education, K-12 education has to be funded before anything else. And they would love to cut more of it um, than they do. And I think that is the source of a lot of that rhetoric is their frustration that they don't feel that education is doing its fair share in taking cuts to balance the state budget. I don't personally agree with that, but I think that that is the perception that many legislators have. And I think that the WEA does a good job of doing outreach, but I think more conversations with educators directly and maybe grassroots organizing among educators to have conversations with people that represent them in the legislature could be helpful. I found as I've been door knocking, and this is not a a perfect corollary, But I run into people that clearly disagree with me about a lot of things. If I keep the conversation going and I keep trying to talk to them, eventually they are disarmed and they do listen. The trouble is, how do you have those one-on-one conversations with an entire legislative body? Right. And the answer is it takes a lot of time and a lot of work that I'm not sure that people have. Yeah. Well, this, this is tough. So, like, for my podcast that I've been working on, looking at why teachers are leaving... I reached out to four, two, two Republican, two Democrat, four folks on the um, education committee. Mm-hmm. And I heard back from two. I'm meeting with Chris Rothfuss tomorrow. And then Afi Ellis wrote back and said, and, and I, I tried to reach out again, but she was like, I don't have enough information on the topic you're asking about. Thank you for like reaching out, but I would want to wait till I know more, which like, I, re- I appreciate that. Yeah, absolutely. I, re- I wrote her again and I was like, okay, cool. Let's ignore that. Want to talk about something else? Yeah. <laughs> and, and back um, like I appreciate the initial response, but I think a, a senator and then a representative that didn't respond. Yeah. And so I think like as a teacher who's trying to reach out to people on that committee to talk, is it, is it just too much to have to do? Or like, that's disheartening from my side when I'm like, Hey, I've got this grant. I'm looking at this problem. Like I have yeah. a purpose. Yeah. And I, that's something I aim to do in the legislature is, I, is listen and, and do outreach with at least the constituents that live in my district, because um, I've also had that experience of writing my senator and my representative to get no response. Yeah. I mean, it's an email, right? Um, and you're a legislator. Uh, and, and I feel like the bare minimum that you need to do is at least try to reach out and talk to the people that represent you and not just through interest groups or lobbyists or people who are approaching you um, professionally. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, that doesn't help people with specific needs very well. You're just taking the temperature of your, of your district. Uh, it doesn't allow you to go in and say, I need to talk to teachers. You don't get a list of teachers on the voter roll, right? right. You don't get a list of blue collar voters. You don't, that, that information is not available. You just get a list of voters and you don't even get a list of people who don't vote. You don't get a list of the addresses that don't have people registered there. Um, So that outreach is flawed. So I don't have an answer for how to get people to be more responsive, but I, I do 
intend to be one of the more responsive legislators that is in service. And I think that that would go for people I disagree with, too. It's hard. And I think like in Wyoming, where I don't know, when I think of our political parties, I don't know that they line up with other states' political parties. Like, I feel like yeah. how, how many most Wyoming Democrats I know of hunt. Right. And like, it's probably not happening elsewhere. No, it's not. I mean, and, I, I am a Democrat. I own 10 guns, uh, you know, and, and that's and that's I have a complicated relationship with guns. Yeah. And I and I'll say that to anyone who asks me about gun issues. Well, that's that was that was one of the things, because like, oh, I think of like mental health a lot. That's such a big issue here. And I found an article I was doing research on Hemingway stuff. And I found an article from like 1938. It was out of Cody. And it was a headline from the Cody newspaper, whatever it was called at the time. And it said suicide, a Wyoming epidemic. Oh God! And and so like nineteen thirty eight, thirty five, whenever that was. Yeah. And it hasn't changed. And like, I don't, I don't know what the answer is. When we went to high school, there were several. We had several suicides in the few years we were there, and mm-hmm. and I wonder like how. So many of the suicides are tied to having easy access to guns. Like that's an easy method. And you can't, you can't ignore that. It's, it is a fact. Ease of access to firearms makes the success of a suicide attempt uh, a much higher possibility. How do we break the taboo one of getting help for mental health? How do we convince people that maybe like having a guns in a tricky spot is maybe better for your well-being? I don't know. I, I think that things like red flag laws, um, are good. They're not a cure-all, but they do allow people who have expressed, you know, suicidal ideation to reach out for help and have their guns get taken away by a loved one or by law enforcement. I know right now red flag laws typically talk about, you know, a mass shooting situation, but I think that they also can save the lives of a lot of people who are in crisis who only intend to hurt themselves. And I would like to see something like that through the Wyoming legislature, but Sharing that about him in a way, boy, I, that makes me feel like maybe I don't, I don't know what to do because it's been since, since we've, the first 50 years we were a state, that is, that's hard. I, obviously we have a lack of access to quality healthcare of all kinds. Mm-hmm. Mental health care is even more that way. Um, and how to break the stigma, um, I think people who go to therapy should talk to other people about the fact that they go to therapy and it should be talked about like, oh, I went to a doctor's appointment. Oh, I went to a therapy appointment or I had a dentist appointment. Mm-hmm. But that's hard because there already is a stigma. It's a self it's a self-defeating cycle. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't I don't know what the legislature's role in helping that would be other than supplying funding for mental health and for those in crisis and reaching out and getting something like a red flag law uh, on the books that allows people who are going to hurt themselves or others to, you know, temporarily lose access to their firearms. Part of it is there's just so many of them. There's just so many firearms and there's so many people who are hurting. And I just, I'm not sure the, what the answer there is. Yeah. And that's part of why I have a complicated relationship with guns. I love them. I use them as tools. But I also uh, see that they are hurting my community and the sheer amount of them 
an easy access to them is not always, it's not always a positive. Yeah. There's not a lot going on in Wyoming. I mean, it's, I think there's a lot if you know what to look for. Right. But I feel like for some folks, I don't know, there's, it could be the wind, uh, which we can't do a whole heck of a lot about. But I wonder to what extent if talking about uh, going back to a first kind of focus on like economy and revenue and if there is more, like if there are more more facilities for folks to go to. Focus of, of several reservations is to, um, or tribal communities, is to have like a rec center. Mm-hmm. But a rec center that has all these community things. So like you get your, like your health service, you have all of these things that are bringing a community together. And like you said, that if that's not available in a town, right, um, and being so desolate, like that could be a hard thing. But oh. if we had the revenue to have those things, that could be really. How much? How much time have you spent in Pinedale? Ooh, uh, I spent my first two days there. Okay, so two days. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, so did you see the pack? Did you go to the Pinedale Aquatic Center? Did you see there? No. They have a giant rec center. Okay. That is incredible. It's got a swimming pool, racquetball courts, a weight room, meeting rooms, and things like that. Yeah. And when I go, I have friends who live up there. And when I think of what Pinedale looked like when I used to go visit my dad's friend to go sage grouse hunting, you know, it looked a lot like, you know, Pine Bluffs. Right. You know, it was just a small town. The people who lived there really liked it. Uh, and it was, you know, outdoor and pack focused. Um, you know, people who would want to horseback or go into the winds. It's always been a gateway community for the Windrowers. Um, but it was, you know, it was a nice little town. The pack has transformed that place, I feel like. And it was built by oil with a lot of as a gift from oil and gas companies or with revenue from oil and gas that had come in through the city. So it's not a perfect example, but it does show exactly what you're talking about is if there is a gathering place where you can be healthy and have something to do and meet other people and be social, people use it. I think it's done tremendous things for the health of that community. Now I'm sure that people who live in Pinedale would love to tell you they're not a perfect community and they have plenty of problems, but I don't know a single person who lives there that doesn't regularly go to the pack for something the way that we would go to the library or to the store. Yeah. And I think that, you know, libraries are another great opportunity. Libraries uh, throughout the state are not quite as um, nice as the Laramie County Library. And I would love to see every community, at least every county, have at least one library that is a lot like ours because it's that gathering point that you're talking about. We don't have a rec center famously uh, in Cheyenne, despite many years of trying. Um, But we do have those gathering points. And I think that people really sell the government's ability to provide those amenities and provide those gathering points short. I think they think that they'll be filled. The need will be filled by an entrepreneur who wants to create something. But I think those are definitely things that the government has a role to provide that can make a really easy and direct benefit to most of the people that lives there, live their lives. Same with an investment in a school for a lot of communities. It's the only school that serves that purpose. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's the school during the day, but people also go there for, you know, uh, meetings or they go there for uh, recreation in the gym or on the track. Um, and it shouldn't fall to the school districts to provide that. That's something that every community should be able to provide for itself yeah this is just this is big for me and what i've been thinking of uh you know we've had libraries across the state you know uh school district libraries and then just even like public libraries being 
essentially threatened the librarians being called purveyors of porn. Yeah. And, and I, I guess, is this something that's within within the realm of, of legislature of looking at like, is there something in place so that, I mean, freedom of speech is, I think, pretty important. But I think and, and where does that fall? Not having legislators show up to stoke the fire would be a huge help because I know a big theme of both the school district anger and say in Gillette, the library there, legislators were showing up to participate in that. And so I don't think as long as that is happening, there's anything the Wyoming legislature can do as a body to prevent that from occurring. One thing I do tend to be more conservative about, I do believe in local control, but I also think that I just wish people would be more kind, but I can't legislate that. (laughs) I wish people would be kind and not show up. And I wish people would have spent more time at the library Mm -hmm. uh, learning how to differentiate fact from fiction. And I don't know how to make that happen. But I will say I'm really disappointed by it. And I it makes me mad. It makes me want to go and yell at a meeting, which is not helpful. And I never did do. But it's that's the emotional reaction I hear when I hear that someone's screaming at librarians like, come on, the most public servants, the most public servanty of all public servants are librarians. And that just um, it makes me angry. I, I I think that local control is important. So it's important for that library board, for that school district to be able to handle people that they represent and the people that that support them in the way that they see fit. Because I don't like if the legislature comes in and starts saying this town can't levy this, you know, 7% sales tax because they want to. I I, I don't want to be a hypocrite and say local control is great sometimes until it's, you know, doesn't suit me. Mm -hmm. And then, which is currently how the legislature acts on a lot of things. We love local control until uh, they start doing things we don't like. And then we got to step in and tamp that down. And maybe that's just the nature of, of being the state legislative body. Maybe that is just the very nature of the beast but as much as i hate it and as much as i disagree with it i'm not sure the legislature has a role to fix it yeah that's fair and i that's one where i was like i don't really know but yeah it's it's something but if i think of something i'll let you know yeah (laughs) so i got these are the big ones and i don't i mean if you had an answer in your back pocket that'd be rad um what is wyoming's role or what do we need to do um when thinking about climate change I think that Wyoming needs to let them stop trying to prop up a dying industry. We supposedly believe in free market economy and the market is telling us that this industry is going away and we're spending millions of dollars trying to prop up an industry that is not only harming our citizens indirectly through climate change. Granted, it's providing a lot of benefit to our citizens economically both directly through employment and indirectly through being our pretty much sole source of revenue. So I don't want to sell coal and oil and gas and extractive industries short. They are they employ lots of good people and they have lots of caring, hardworking people that work for them. Um, I'm not sure that the corporate entity cares very much about any given town or person, um, but I do know that the people that work for them are good people. But I don't think that we should be propping up that industry or those companies or trying to build a coal export terminal in another state in order to keep selling that that product. Um, so sort of do no harm is the first thing you can do. We also don't need to hasten its decline. I don't think that we need to step in as a state and say this industry needs to go away quicker 
because I think that that is happening. That that is beyond the realm of what we are able to do and what we should be doing. So as far as preventing climate change, I'm not sure there's much that we can do as a legislative body. What we can be doing is planning and mitigating for its effects mm. on our communities. And I think that at this point, the most impactful thing the Wyoming legislature can be doing is preparing communities for wildfires, preparing communities for drought, preparing communities for loss of crop income. Um, and there's lots of proven ideas to help mitigate those impacts. And we just need to be spending money to do them. And I know that there's emergency managers all over the state in every county who would be hard pressed to say that they're not noticing that the incidents are getting more extreme and they're happening more often. And so that I think is the most direct thing we can do is try to, we have to accept it that it's happening. We need to help our communities mitigate it. Hmm. it have you looked, do you know anything about carbon capture? Like, does that, I know some about carbon capture. I do know that if we were to develop carbon capture, I would love to be, I would love for Wyoming to be the place where it was developed, but it needs to be a global solution if it's going to make any sort of difference. And if we could, you know, like the carbon X prize, uh, if we could find a way to subsidize it and have it be not just to save coal, but because we want to, um, center a growing industry here in our state, I think that would be fine. But I think where it falls short is that it's really just subsidized to try and save coal. And when it, you know, the costs of it or the timelines of it come out that like, it's not going to save coal right now. I think that it sort of falls by the wayside in interest and investment. If new technology can save us, <laughs> then I'm all for it. And I want to support it in any way that I can. But I, I do know that it's not a Wyoming only, you can't just stop. Absolutely. You can't just capture carbon here, which I think a lot of people also miss. Like, oh, we'll just put scrubbers that capture all the carbon on just the Wyoming coal plants, right. and that will solve our problem. I said, well, <laughs> I, was, I built a set of those when I, when I worked in Glen Rock, Dave Johnson Power Plant. Wow, we built the it was clean coal. Yeah, and we're like, oh, I know, but we have a job. All right, like yeah, was, exactly. And it was it was this big project, which I don't I don't know how how well it worked or not, but. Yeah. And, you know, I heat my house. I use electricity. Coal provides so many good things right now in this very moment. But I think that we need to acknowledge that it is not a long term solution. And so that does that look like subsidies for I mean, I know there's issues with solar. There's issues with with wind. Yeah. If, if we can subsidize and, and c- capture revenue and, and be a leader in renewable energy, I'm all for it. I'm 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 in favor of this uh, natrium nuclear power plant that's on a smaller scale that is being built where there's already power plants, which is a boon to the communities. And we have uranium here that doesn't mitigate the mining environmental aspects, but it is significantly less of an emissions issue. And because it uses molten sulfur, I think it's molten sulfur uh, as the cooling um, instead of water, you don't need to use a lot of your water resources, which are also, but I think that that is, you know, I think why there's so much excitement about the government is is it seems like a one-on-one plug and play, like move the mines to here and move the power plants to this and ta-da, we can sustain. I don't know if it's a panacea, but it is less emittive and it is still, obviously everything has an environmental impact. I live on a house that was once, you know, riparian area. So, but I, I think that 
that could be a potential for for helping power our region in a pretty safe way. The trouble, though, being I, the, my analogy with nuclear is it's like building the pipeline through the wilderness area. Yeah, I mean, there's very, 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 very low chance that that pipeline's ever going to spring a leak and cause a problem. Um, but if it does, what are the what yeah, are the costs? Um, sure. And that's that makes me nervous about nuclear. Absolutely. But I think, like, I guess with all that too, I mean, we're going to be running with climate change. We're going to run into water issues, and mm-hmm. we already have water fights. Is this? I don't know, dude. It, this might be not in your realm, but is this something that you have ideas on, like what we need to be thinking about doing? Well, we need to be uh, incentivizing at a local level. I'm not sure if you saw my lawn when you drove up, but oh, it's dead. <laughs> um, and we're we're going to replace it with native prairie grass. And we planted uh, Zarek pollinator gardens. And I think we can look to other places throughout the United States that have done something similar, like Santa Fe, New Mexico. Mm-hmm. It's a great example. There's a lot of, you know, your, all the houses and buildings are adobe and they have Zarek gardens. You're not allowed to plant a lawn. I think that we just need to acknowledge that we live in the high desert and we need to pass local. We need to encourage cities to pass local laws to incentivize people to uh, stop planting lush Kentucky bluegrass and just watering the crap out of it. And I think that that's, that's one very small step that can help. The other is, you know, we, we need storage capacity and I am an environmentalist, but I, I do think we we need to have some more dams um, hmm. to store water, hmm. because I think that uh, if we don't have the ability to do planned releases of water and planned, um, especially for Casper and for Cheyenne, I think we're really going to run into trouble 20, 30 years down the line. We don't have more capacity for storage. And I think the Belvoir would be a great place for Cheyenne specifically um, to have a dam in addition to the fact that it's already being looked at as a recreation area, having a large lake there in that prairie would be, I think would be beneficial. And I've thought long and hard about that. I don't typically like dams and I don't typically like large changes to the landscape, but I do know that people need to drink water to live. Yeah. And I, so I don't know long-term if there's going to be enough water, certainly I think Wyoming will always be okay, but we're going to see increasing pressure from people uh, in the Southwest to send more water down to them. We're not part of the Colorado River Compact, technically. We're like a fake member of the Colorado right. Compact. Like, yeah. Because we there there are, we have there no are obligations. Quote unquote obligations, but like yeah. air quote obligations. Yeah. And like those states have already been using more than their percent for however many years. Right. And they're just getting bigger. And it's not very neighborly, but at what point do you have to say, you right. know, when I think that Phoenix needs to shrink. Right. <laughs> and then I guess my last big one is what is your role when thinking about, we talked a little bit about healthcare, but let's think more specifically of reproductive rights. Man. Yeah. Reproductive rights is something that I had a hard time talking about because a big part of my campaign is I want to say, I want to be open-minded and I want to be constructive. And what I don't want to do is at the beginning of a conversation, have someone just turn off like we talked about. I want to be able to relate so that communication can happen. I feel so... <laughs> it's one of those issues where where there's very little room for agreement on a lot of things. I think everyone can agree that there's, you know, if you can minimize 
the amount of abortions that occur in a society, it means your society is doing something right. Now, whether or not that means you've instituted theocracy or you've provided for people what they need, um, what definitions of society is doing something right differ pretty strongly. But I think I've landed on the way to relate to other people is to say, uh, approach it through the lens of religious liberty. And I just, it's, you, science can say all it wants from life begins at conception to life begins like with your first breath. Like science can't say that. Science can say the zygote begins here, the heartbeat starts here, um, brain activity starts here. We can measure that, but when life actually begins philosophically, that's a religious question. And so the minute that you codify into law, life begins right now or uh, later, like you've made a religious stance, and I cannot abide by that. And I think that people care about religious liberty in Wyoming. People care about privacy. Uh, and I think that those are the inroads I can make to people who are supportive of limiting reproductive rights by saying, but have you thought about how it, how it's a endorsement of a particular religion or how it's an invasion of someone's privacy or someone's bodily autonomy? And I think, I hope I can have those conversations because I think that that is that is something that people do care about. And I think that they maybe have not fully thought through the repercussions of some of these laws on, on things like religious liberty or privacy and how, if we don't have a 14th amendment presumption of privacy, do we have a 14th amendment of assumption of privacy about a great deal other things that maybe will affect them more personally than they realize. How is it going so far? <laughs> How's the door knocking going? Down? It's going really well. It's going really well. I've been really humbled. I've been really humbled. I, I kind of thought when I started and I announced that like, I'll run a good campaign, I'll door knock, I'll answer the questionnaires, but you know, I'm a Democrat in Wyoming and so I, I know it's an uphill battle. Uh, but suddenly I had almost $10,000 that people had donated to me and, and I had, you know, an army of volunteers coming out to want to do things and help and people giving ideas and strangers I've never met sending me emails saying that they're really excited to see me run and they will take a yard sign. And so now I'm feeling an imperative <laughs> to do it as good as possible. I kind of had deluded myself thinking, well, if I don't do well, it's on me. You know, all the responsibility falls on me. But now I have a lot of people behind me and I'm grateful for it. And I'm feeling inspired to work hard and win <laughs> would be the best outcome. Yeah. But um, if not win, you know, I've never gotten a mailer from Bob Nicholas in the entire 10 years. He's been my representative. He's never knocked on my door. I've already gotten a mailer. I already know that he's outdoor knocking. Mm -hmm. um, good for democracy, bad for our campaign. Um, <laughs> but, but that's a victory already that the existing incumbent is doing exactly what we were talking about earlier. And now they are going out and they are going to talk to their people that they represent more than they ever have. And I take that very seriously. So there will be good outcomes regardless. I hope that the best outcome is the outcome, which is that I'll be serving in the legislature. Yeah, that's right, man. So I do like to focus on, gosh dang, just focus on democracy. That yeah. like a, we we need we need it to work. Yeah. And we can't overstep it. And I think uh, yeah, I think a great way to do that is just be, being honest with the people that you represent. Don't try to say, I'm going to do a straw poll for every issue and I want to know what you think. And I'm going to say what the most people say, but say, here's what I believe. You can always, I don't want you to ever be surprised by a vote that I take. And I want you to feel like you can reach out to me. Mm -hmm. And if you don't like the job that I do, please vote me out. 
um, because that's the way it's supposed to work. Yeah. I don't want to just cling to a job once I have it, just cling to it. I want to be a fair representative. And if people are not satisfied with the representation I give them and I get voted out, then, you know, that I will be at peace with that. Thanks for interviewing me. Yeah. Good job. I appreciate it. For sure. Thanks, Charles, for the wonderful conversation. And thanks to those that listened in as well. This has been the Evans for Seven campaign podcast. Today's episode was edited and produced by Anna Rader. If you would like to interview me for a future episode, please reach out via the website at evansforseven.com. This podcast was paid for and produced by the committee to elect Jordan Evans.